Okay, the story begins, friends. We are on page 19, middle of the page, actually the bottom of the page. Ketoret, Ketores, part two. Incense, biblical incense. Quick recap on what incense are and why that's relevant to davening. The bigger picture is that davening is a replacement for these services that took place in the Beit HaMikdash. So before starting the davening, as a preliminary, we read about the services that took place. We read about the removal of the ashes. We read about the Tamid sacrifice, the Korban. And then we read about the incense service. Last week, we contrasted Korban, the sacrifice, with incense, Ketoret. Korban means karov, to come close, closeness with God, which is very subjective. How close are you? When do you feel close? Today I feel less, tomorrow I feel more. It fluctuates. Ketoret comes from the Aramaic word katar, which means knotted, connected. It's a absolute connection, not because of how close I feel, but just because of who I am deep down inside as a Jew. And that's why its performance is a little bit more spiritual. It's incense, it's scent. Doesn't matter how many people are there, one person, two person, three people, it doesn't four people, a hundred people, doesn't matter. It's the same amount of scent. Okay. We went into the biblical verses that describe the incense. This next section, the bottom of 19, goes into the Talmudic teachings, the Tanaic teachings, the Mishnaic teachings of how the Ketoret were actually performed. In other words, from the biblical verse, and this is in general, the duality, if you will, of the written Torah and the oral Torah, as it's laid out in the mission of the Talmud. The written Torah tells you what? The oral Torah expounds on that and tells you how and why. So we know the what. We know that there's got to be incense. But what incense? Well, we know what incense from the Torah as well. But how to do that? What are the quantities? When? Where? That's led into great detail over the next couple of paragraphs, the next uh, page or so, page and a half or so, um, describing the incense. Let, let's read it briefly. We're not going to read the whole thing, but let's just start off because there's important, important insights here. And these insights are going to give, get us in the right frame of mind for prayer. And in general, it's a good framework for understanding our Judaism, which is really what the goal is here. Uh, bottom of the page, last paragraph, 19. The rabbis have taught. How was the incense prepared? It was weighed 368 manim, 365 corresponding to the number of days in the solar year, which, by the way, it's important to note, does Judaism follow the solar calendar or the lunar calendar? And the answer is yes. <laughs> Both. We follow the lunar calendar for um, in general, but we also follow the solar calendar. For example, Passover has to be in the spring, which is why we have leap years, right? Okay, 365. There's a total 368 manim, which was the quantity, 365 corresponding to the days of the solar year. Um, and, and again, that's a that's a estimate because a solar year is a little bit less than that. Solar year is 364 and a quarter. Uh, Maimonides talks about this in his in his uh, John. You still learning Maimonides? Uh, his whole uh, ast astronomy. 
Oh my goodness, I'm on the second half of it and I I'm, I'm about to give up. It's so it, it's like, difficult. Yeah. <laughs> one one mana for each day, half a mana to be offered in the morning and half a mana to be offered toward the evening. Now, what do you do with the other three? There was a total of 368. 365 were offered daily, morning and evening, uh, of these incense. What do you do with the uh, other three? The other three, Manim, from which the Kohen Gadol took two handfuls into the Holy of Holies on Yom Kippur. So the other three were reserved for Yom Kippur. There was a special incense. Incense offering took place daily. It took place on, there were two altars in the temple. There was the external altar on the outside. That was a large altar. That's where animals were sacrificed on. That's the external part of the heart, the conscious part of the heart. In the human, because the core, the, the beta mictus corresponds to the human. But then there's the inner depths of the heart. That's the katoret, right? That's the objective spiritual connection. That took place on a smaller altar, a golden altar, inside the temple. But if you keep going in the temple, there's various checkpoints in the temple. Recently, I got approval the past couple of months to to uh, go to the Livermore Laboratory. They gave me a badge and we do a weekly Torah class there. It's really cool. And there's a lot of security there. There's and there's checkpoints. You, 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 I drive up, there's a guy with a machine gun checking my badge, but I'm only up allowed up till a certain point. Wow. Right? At some point, my badge is this color and I can't go past this point. Right? There's checkpoints. In the Beta Mikdash, there were checkpoints. At this point, anybody can come in. At this point, only anybody from the tribe of Levi could come in. At this point, only a Cohen come, could come in. At this point, only a Cohen who's serving could come in. At this point, right? So you enter the actual uh, past Mizbeach. You're not serving and you're a Cohen. Can't go in. You have to be a Cohen. You have to be serving. Okay. But then you go into the Holy of Holies, the innermost chamber of the Beit HaMikdash. That's where the Cohen Gadol would go on Yom Kippur. The Holy of Holies was a place where only the Kohen Kadlu can go in on one day. So it was reserved, this special room. This is where the Ark of the Covenant was placed. The Ark that had the tablets in them. And the Kohen Gadlu could only go there once a year, and that's it, to perform this service. And he would take these three extra excess manim of spices. Um, they were put back in to the mortar on the day before him, Kippur, ground again very thoroughly as to make incense extremely fine. It, it really, this really was the climax of the Yom Kippur service. There was a lot that takes place on the Yom Kippur service. Yom Kippur is probably the busiest day in the Beit HaMikdash. Um, we read about it, you know, this is why the Musaf is so long on Yom Kippur, because we read about the entire service, the sprinkling of the blood and the counting and the bowing and the kneeling and saying God's name. But, it, but the climax was the Kohen Gadol representing everybody going into the Holy of Holies performing this incense. And the reason is because what does Yom Kippur represent? Yom Kippur represents the essential identity of a Jew. In general, on a regular day, well, let, let me take a step back, okay? There are five layers to the soul, which means, in English, there are five layers to your 
identity. There is your motivation to behave. There is your emotional self, your intellectual self, your drive, and then there's you, right? From the most outer to the most inner. So for example, if somebody were to, I think we've spoke about this in the past, probably in our Tanya classes, if somebody were to offend my behavior, they criticized something I made, something I did. It might hurt, but I'll, I'll get over it. I'll be okay. You don't like what I did? Fine. Right? You don't like my artistic, whatever. Fine, whatever. I'm okay. I'll get over it. If you make fun of my feelings, though, a little bit deeper, that hurts. If you invalidate the way I feel, that's harder to get over, but I could forgive you. I could get over it eventually. I'll work through it. You make fun of the way I think. You offend the way I think that. And the same thing on the other way around. If you compliment the way I think, right? That's going to hit me a lot deeper. If you were to criticize my drive, what motivates me, my passion. That's a really deep part of me that hurts. I'll get over it eventually, <laughs> but it's that's that's a deeper wound. You're you're cutting me much deeper than were you just to offend um, something I do, right? If you were to mess with me, my the true me, not the me that I think I am, but the me whom I really am. There's no going back. I can't get over it. There's so many stories where people did not identify with their Jewishness behaviorally, emotionally, intellectually, motivationally. I'm just going through the different layers here. Yet somebody calls them dirty Jew and what happens? What? You want to mess? You're making fun of my Jewishness? I'm a Jew, right? You can't make fun of my Jews because that's the essential connection that we're describing here where I can connect to being a Jew, not just because I'm engaging in it intellectually or emotionally or behaviorally or on any of these levels. It's just who I am. That's what the Ketorah represents. The incense represents. That's what Yom Kippur represents. This is the fifth level of the soul known as the Yechida the deepest level of the soul, almost the, the essence of the soul, who you are, not how you feel or how you or what you do. Yom Kippur is the only day that there are five prayers that day. On a regular day, we have the Shachwis, Mincha, Mariv, three prayers corresponding to the three lower levels of the soul, the behavior, emotional, intellectual, the conscious part of the soul. On Shabbos, Yom Tov, Rosh Chodesh, we have a fourth prayer. We have Musaf, which represents that fourth level of the soul, which is my drives. It's a much more spiritual day. So there's a spiritual level of my soul that's accessed. Yom Kippur is the only day that we also have Ne'ilah, the fifth level of the soul, V'yichida, the essence. Who I am, not what I do. This is why uh, Ne'ilah, what does the word Ne'ilah mean? Oh, Right, the closing, but I'm 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 locked in with God. I'm closed in. It's this day 
that again, the Yechida is something we have with us all the time. The essence of the souls, it's always who we are. We're always Jewish. We do incense every day. But there was a, a specific incense performance on Yom Kippur. And it was specifically in the Holy of Holies, in this one room with, by one person. Right, there's a common theme here. This is essentially what intimacy is, by the way. The Kohen Gadol goes into this room, and it's just him and God. It has to be the right person, only a Kohen Gadol. has to be in the right place, and it's in the right time. And any, any of those three elements are lacking. It's no longer intimate. In fact, it becomes desecration. It becomes a, a desecration. A desecration to the point that he would lose his life, right? So, yes, exactly. To, to the point that there was a very long period in history where there was political corruption of people assuming the position of Cohen Gubler, even though they weren't fit for it, and they were losing their lives year after year. They didn't realize that <laughs> you can't fake it till you make it in this uh, situation. It got to the point, this is how bad it got. It, again, the, the Kohen Gadol is a, you know, in the Yom Kippur service, we describe. Remember the prayer, Mare Kohen? You know that prayer, Mare Kohen, where we describe the, the face, the countenance of the Kohen. There's a special tune we sing. And we go through five or six different stanzas describing the splendor, the countenance, the radiance that the Kohen Gadol's face shining as he walked out of that room. But it only worked if he was fit to serve. And it got to a point where it was so corrupt that he had a they they would start putting a chain on the back of the Kohen Gadol to yank him out because you can't go in there. Only the Kohen Gadol could go in there. So how are you going to get him out if he dies? <laughs> so they had a chain on his back just in case. That's how bad it got. Um, well, wait a second. Before they figured out they should use a chain, what happened? <laughs> they probably had to, I don't know. That's a good question. They, they had to get a lasso in. No, okay. I don't know. That's a good question. Um, there, there are times where they would go in there. They would go in there for maintenance, but even then they were they had to face the wall and they, I, I think I mentioned this last week or two weeks ago, the, um, the, the digital walkthrough, virtual walkthrough that made to make this. And it talks about all the various rooms in that virtual walkthrough. They talk about how they had this, you know, how like the window washers have these uh, things that slide down the window, you, you know, down the sides of the building, like these, the scaffolding, the scaffolding, but that's like suspended by string and they yeah. kind of slide. So yeah. they had that type of scaffolding that would, and they would do maintenance, and they had to make sure to face the wall. There, there was a whole process. Stay suspended in the air. Exactly. By the way, what's interesting is, in general, the garb of the Kohen Gadol. Maybe I should have prepared a picture, but are, do we all have some sort of general idea of what the Kohen Gadol looked like, the various garb? The, the, the big kahuna. The big kahuna, right? Okay, yeah, from our, our Hawaii representative, <laughs> the big kahuna. So the big kahuna, the Kohen Gadol, had eight distinct garments of various woven wool and blue wool. And there was the ephod, the breastplate that was shining with the various different stones. But for this service and Yom Kippur, he would remove all of that and wear plain white garments. 
because when we're talking to the about the essence of the soul, I'm a Jew. I'm just going to keep it simple. I'm just going to be pure. It's one of the reasons why on Yom Kippur there's a tradition to wear a kittel, to wear a white uh, gown type of thing. That's one of the reasons. By the way, Yom Kippur, the power of Yom Kippur is so strong. The burning soul is so real that everybody picks the most boring day to show up to shul. <laughs> I'm serious. Show up on Purim. There's alcohol. <laughs> show up on Hanukkah. There's donuts. Show up on, on Sukkot. You got to sit in the sukkah and, or our Simcha's Torah where there's drinks and there's dancing. Why are you showing up on Yom Kippur? The problem is if you only show up on Yom Kippur, you think that's what Shul is like. So then you don't. <laughs> but but why pick that one day? And there's something to that. A, a Jew can't not show up. Do you know the story they say of the this guy's hanging out in the lobby during the Neila service? Neila's always packed. And the rabbi says, Why don't you come in and pray? pray? I don't do that. I'm not praying. I don't believe. I'm not. So why are you here? <laughs> Because it's Yom Kippur, gotta gotta go to shul. <laughs> that that's that, but there's something to that. The power of Yom Kippur is going to draw us in. Teshuvah is going to be easier on Yom Kippur, to the point that as long as we participate, the day itself atones. We just gotta tap in. Now, the reason why we're talking about Yom Kippur now, even though it's we got a little bit of. We, time to get there is because this idea is represented on some level by the notion of the ketoret of the incense it was celebrated to a much greater degree and there was a whole service of it on yom kippur but the incense was something every day every day we rep we we celebrate and we experience i'm a jew just that simple i might not be knowledgeable i might not be passionate passionate or feel like i care I may I might not yet be behaviorally engaged to the extent that I should be. Right, go through all the various levels of the soul, but there's one part of me that's for sure there: the ketoret, the objective connection, the yichida. On Yom Kippur, this is the full day. But when it's not Yom Kippur, you know, Moda'ani is like the the pinnacle of this that we spoke about earlier. Okay, let's turn to page twenty. We go on to list the 11 various incense that were there. We're not going to read through them now. Um, Kabbalists talk about the significance of 11. 10 represent the 10 sephirot, 10 divine attributes of God, personality traits, if you will, that God tends to express himself with. Chachma, Bina, Das, Chesig, etc. 11 capitalists explain, represent the attributes from the klipa side. There's 11 klipa personality traits, 11 negative personality traits that are antithetical to God. And we take those incense, we take those 11 uh, things of klipa, and we, we and that's why many of the incense come from things that are actually prohibited, like blood and stuff like that. And we transform that into a pleasant smell to God. We transform that into the essence of the soul. The essence of the soul has the ability to transform, even Klippa. Take a look at paragraph number three, second to last paragraph. 
This is interesting. Again, we're just quoting various passages from the Talmud or from the Mishnah. It has been taught, right? Paragraph number three, you see it? It has been taught, Rabbi, Rabbi, Rabbi Nassan, Rabbi Nathan says, while the Kohen Gadol was grinding the incense, the overseer would say, grind it thin, grind it thin. It would be like this chant, grind it thin, grind it thin in Hebrew. Hadek, hetev, hetev, hadek. And the reason is because the rhythmic sound is good for the compounding of the spices. They would chant to the spices and it would actually have a real impact on the spices. If you go to fancy restaurants, <laughs> we were at this kosher steakhouse once years ago in Los Angeles. And the, wait the waiter was telling us about this veal that they play music to in the farm. My father says, uh, what type of music is it? I don't know. <laughs> but uh, apparently it's a thing. I mean, it makes sense. A relaxed. I mean, over here, it's not an inanimate. It's an animal. And music will calm it down. And that's, that's going to have an impact. But Judaism believes that this is going to have an impact even on something as simple or as inanimate as spices. And what we see here is the power of speech, the impact that that has on the physical world. The environment that took place while grinding the spices affected the spices. But what you chanted affected the spices. What we chant in our homes affects the spirituality of our homes. I'll tell you a great insight coming off of Shavuos a couple of weeks ago, right after the giving of the Torah at Sinai, the Torah describes God's voice as a kol gadol velo yasaf, a great voice that had no end to it. The Midrash says, what does it mean it had no end? There was no echo. And commentaries wonder, you would think that, you know, at least in the movies, God is described with like this big echoing voice, you know, like. Um, you know, this big Noah, you know, there's this big echoing, but the Torah describes God as having no echo. And how is that extolling? Is that the right word? How does that extol God? You would think if you want to extol the greatness of God, his voice had this resounding sound. No, no echo. An echo is a result of the sounds bouncing back, not penetrating. God's voice penetrates. With the Torah, which is God's voice, which is what he conveyed, penetrates. When we study at our homes, when we study Torah, we're studying Torah right now. At home, in the car, at work, when we have a free moment, it penetrates. It has a real effect in our homes. You walk into a home where somebody has learned Torah in that home, it's different. People are going to sense it. They will. There's a book, an author from the 16, uh, 17th century, maybe 18th century, Germany, known as the Kav Hayashar. The word Kav, Kuf Bet, has the numerical value of 102. That's the amount of pages that's in the book. I just read this. I thought it was interesting. Yashar, if you rearrange the letters, is the word Hirsch, the 
it was the author was Rabbi Hirsch. I forgot his last name. He was in Germany. In the book Kava Yashar, he writes that there's an old tradition for people to take the table or the stender that they would study Torah with, and they would make their coffin. They wanted their coffin to be made out of that wood. Why? Because the Torah, the voice of God, gets absorbed. And that's what you take with you. That's what advocates with you for you. All this to say that our speech has an incredible ability to penetrate the physical world. And we see that right over here, just in the preparation of the spices, what they chanted actually impacted the quality of the spices. Take a look on the bottom of the page. We're going to go all the way down to the next portion here. Again, it has been taught. Bar Kapara says, you'll see in, when you learn the Talmud, a lot of Aramaic names that aren't as popular anymore in Jewish communities or culture. But Bar Kapara says, once in 60 or 70 years, half the required yearly quantity of incense came from the accumulated surpluses from the three mana from which the high priest took two handfuls on Yom Kippur. Again, there was a total of 368 mana. They used 365 annually. You have three extra, right? That's reserved for Yom Kippur, but they didn't take the whole thing on Yom Kippur. They would just take two handfuls on Yom Kippur. I guess the money was relatively large. I don't know how that translates into contemporary uh, increments. So now every 60, 70 years, you save up and you have a full 368. You don't have to get the Judaism values very much. Uh, not wasting. We spoke about in our JLI course recently. Remember, Mike, about the 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 idea of baltashchis of not wasting, of of not wasting property, because everything is a gift from God, and everything has a purpose. How can we waste it to the point that for 60, 70 years they would save this stuff up as not to waste it? Which is fascinating because in the Beit Hamikdash they had money coming in, <laughs> they had a lot of expenses. This was a negligible expense, but they would they would take care of it still. Okay. Bar Kapara also taught, take a look on the bottom, uh, we're going to flip the page in a second, had a minute quantity of honey been mixed into the incense, no one could have resisted the scent. It would have been really good. Why then was there no honey mixed in it? Because the Torah said, you shall not present, you shall not, you shall present no leaven nor honey as an offering by the fire to the Lord. Honey and leaven or yeast, chametz, were prohibited for all of the offerings with a couple of exceptions. We'll talk about that in a moment. Theoretically, if there was honey, that would have been real good. It's kind of a funny statement, though, that the Talmud says. If there was pork, it would have been good. Well, there isn't pork. <laughs> it's prohibited. <laughs> so why, why would you say if there was? Like, what kind of? We had a wonderful time at Kiddush, and if there was, if there was shrimp, it would have been even better. But but there wasn't, and there wasn't going to be. So why are we even going there? Like it's it's kind of a funny statement. <laughs> so I, I just read a beautiful um, explanation. Our sages teach us that when it comes to morality, when it comes to moral Jewish law. Incest, for example, or relationships, things like that. It's something that should be repulsive. 
right? We should have that sensitivity that this internal moral compass, not only um, I can't engage in whatever it is because um, because God doesn't want me to, but it's actually repulsive. I, sh- I can't do that. But when it comes to more spiritual Jewish laws like kosher, the Talmud says a person should not say, I am appalled, appalled by, by shrimp or by pork. No, no, no. Be honest. I would love to have pork. I'm not going to because God doesn't want me to. Right? Be honest with yourself. And the idea is, it's not that I'm refraining from it because I'm appalled by it. It's not even about me. It's about God. God doesn't want me to have it. The only reason why it's wrong is because God doesn't want us to have it. People say all the time, why do you need to keep kosher? We know we have modern health. What does health have to do with anything? <laughs> I know more unhealthy Jews than, no. <laughs> what is, it has nothing to do with health. This is what God wants. It's the same thing with the honey and the, um, and the yeast. Would have been good. And we have to recognize that. We have to recognize our evil impulse. Can't have it. God doesn't want us to have it. Now, what is wrong with honey or yeast in an offering, in incense or any offering? With the exception of uh, Shavuos, where there was the two bread offerings. In general, there was the showbread, but that was kept separate. But there were two bread offerings that were brought on the altar on Shavuos. That's why we have two meals, a fleshic meal and a dairy meal to represent the two breads. That's one of the reasons. Um, with the exception of that, maybe a couple other uh, offerings. Generally, there was no chametz. Or, so I could or, I could think of a reason for the leaven, but not the honey. I mean, for like okay, a, like leavening, it it rises, right? It and rises. so the the act of rising could be considered uh, ego or haughty. Exactly. Uh, now, honey, I'm thinking about the characteristics of honey, but I can't think of how. There'd be okay. a similar. Uh, no, no, you're you're on the right track. What what does honey represent? Sweetness. Sweetness, pleasure. There's okay. two things that the yetzer hara, the evil inclinations, is going to um get us to internally feel to sin. We're gonna feel arrogant. We're gonna be self-centered. It's gonna be about me, and we're gonna want pleasure. Right, those two things compel us to sin. Fine, we sin, we may, we mess up. Right? How do we atone for sin? We bring a korban, we bring a sacrifice, we bring an offering, and then we bring incense. But if I didn't have that honey, and if I didn't have that um, that arrogance, that leaven, that yeast, I wouldn't have sinned. I wouldn't have needed to bring this offering. So the fact that I need to bring an offering because I sinned, I shouldn't put the tools that I used to have sinned on the altar. Which is, you know, in our, in our personal lives, that's kind of a lesson when, when backtracking and where we went wrong, let's try to identify and not reintroduce those negative patterns back into our lives. This is what the commentary, one of my favorite commentaries on the Torah, his name is Rabbeinu Bahaya, Middle Eastern rabbi from the uh, 11th, 12th century. Fascinating explanation on the Torah because he goes through the simple explanation and then the ethical explanation and then the 
logical explanation and then a Kabbalistic explanation goes through like all different layers and it's fascinating uh, commentary and that, that's, that's the way he takes it. However, the, uh, there are other commentaries that point out there are times where we do have honey and there are times where we do have uh, uh, yeast. We do have chametz. There are times where we do need arrogance or confidence, if you will, right? In general, when it comes to these types of impulses, when it comes to the animal soul impulse, there's two steps in dealing with the animal soul. And we know this from the Tanya. When you're taming an animal, an animal's trying to fight you, right? Put you down. There's two things you need to do. You would want to train the animal. That's the goal. Right? You could ride that animal. It could get you to places where, right? You would want that arrogance to serve as confidence to get you places where you wouldn't have been able to get on your own. You would want that honey, the passion, the pleasure to drive you to do things that you wouldn't have been able to do otherwise to make Judaism a, pl a positive, pleasant experience, to make your relationships a positive and pleasant experience. But before you get to that, you first need to stop the animal from attacking you. <laughs> before you train it, you first need to tame it. So the, 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 um, the altar is the taming period. We haven't yet got to the training period yet. There will be a time where it is trained, and that's why on Shavuos and on certain days there is chametz. There's also a third explanation from the Chida. The Chida was a well-known Sephardic commentator, biblical commentator. Chida is an acronym for Chaim Yosef David Azulai. Fascinating explanations. Here's what he says. What's wrong with chametz? On the altar, if it rises, that means you're taking too long. How long does it take for something to rise? 18 minutes, right? Okay, you're taking too long. <laughs> Mitzvahs, this is God's will. This is an offering. This is us coming close to God. Or when it comes to Ketorah, the, the, the incense, this is us not only being close to God, being part and parcel with him. Why are we procrastinating? <laughs> Why are we allowing it time to rise? Apparently, honey has some sort of rising element in it as well, although as far as Pesach is concerned, it wouldn't be considered chametz. Um, this is all fits perfectly in the general, if we zoom out for a second, we're talking about the specific details here, but if we zoom out for a second, this definitely fits in the framework of what davening is all about. Davening is taming our animal soul, but eventually davening, at, at the end of davening, theoretically, it's not always going to be every day. It might be after a certain amount of time and training and, and after a lot of work and community support. The goal is that it should have an impact on our animal soul, that our animal soul is not just suppressed so I can talk to God, but my animal soul is inspired and feels that it wants to be part of God, wants to be close, wants to know in this relationship. Okay, that's my story and I'm sticking to it. 